you can actually go really far with a primitive understanding if you get your body mechanics power, speed, and coordination dialed in. Even if you don't have a supreme understanding of why and how something works, if you make the shape like a true jiu-jitsu great, like someone who's great, if you emulate Hafa Mendes or you emulate Cobrinha, even if you have no idea what you're doing, that emulation will be effective because the things you're emulating are effective. You will have a hard time self-improving because you don't know why you're great but you will still be effective. But when someone does an orthodox escape that you've never seen before, right? Like the, the discussion is usually talked about in a gym. What's the counter? Oh, well, the counter for this is that. What's the counter of the counter? Oh, well, the counter for that counter is this. As long as you are stuck in the paradigm of counter for counter, you must memorize these hundreds of discrete techniques. That's gonna eventually cause a mental overflow. At least it does for me. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today, we have a very special guest with us again, Charles Harriet. Charles is not your average black belt in jiu-jitsu. He's a true martial arts enthusiast with a rich background. He holds black belts in Kempo and Judo, showcasing his dedication to the martial arts world. He's been a professional breakdancer, and he's one of the featured BJJ Globetrotters coaches. One thing that sets Charles apart is his passion for leg locks. He spent years hunting his knowledge and skills in this area. Charles is the creator of Leg Locks 101, an introductory leg lock curriculum designed to make these techniques accessible and safe for practitioners of all levels. But that's not all. Charles has another masterclass in store for the jiu-jitsu community. He's here to share his expertise on the power of the elbow frame a concept that can supercharge your sweeps and submissions. Charles has tons of experience teaching students how to improve their game with hidden and overlooked positions like the elbow frame. Today, he'll explain how this post can create defense against pressure and opportunities for re-attacks. And that's not all. Charles also introduces us to his system for butt judo, also showcasing how the elbow and armpit frame can be used for surprising techniques like seonagis, kataguruma, and more. So if you're curious about leg locks, the power of the elbow frame, and want to learn from a coach who's dedicated his life to martial arts on several continents, you're in for a treat today. I'm also super happy to announce Charles Harriet will be the first featured instructor of our first ever Forever White Belt sponsored seminar. The one day intensive will be this Veterans Day, Saturday, November 11th, 2023 at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Novato, California. Price and time is TBD, but this event will sell fast, so be on the lookout for how to register. Info will be posted and marketed on all our socials. And with that, I give you Charles Harriet. Charles, welcome to the show, man. Happy to be back, man. Really happy to be back. I have so many things I want to talk to you about. Number one, where are you now? I'm actually home, so a rare, a rare sighting of me in my home right here in Gainesville, Florida. Wow, because this man is never in one place, it seems like. So this is a rarity. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit more common. I think the, the goal is to do a bit more travel in the U.S. this year. So the most of the beginning of the year was Natasha and I traveling through Asia and then Europe and quite a few little tours uh, back and forth across the Atlantic. But now, for the second half of the year, I'm trying to just be USA style a bit more. Just finished a Midwest tour. I'll be planning some stuff out, out west and so definitely some more Florida. Florida stuff during the duration of this year that's still going on. BJ Globetrotters Arizona camp and uh, a seminar in Portland. Trying my best to still do my thing, but also try to live in a home like a somewhat normal human. 
Well, please consider coming to Northern California with Natasha. We would love to have you. Well, I mean, that's not too far from Oregon. That's like pretty close-ish. We could make that happen. Let's talk about it. Charles, one of the things I want to talk to you about has been super fascinating for me. And it's one of those moments, you know, sometimes through your jiu-jitsu career or experience, you have these aha moments, if you will. Definitely one of them was this concept of the arm frame. And several years ago, I was talking to Brandon McCaffrey, who's another incredible black belt coach. And he, he was talking to me briefly about this. And I was kind of playing with it and it was sort of working. And then you came out with a video, I should say, with BJJ Globe Charters and uh, instructional as well. And I was talking to Chris Payne's about it as well. There's something about this arm frame and boy has it i thought the body lock was almost impossible to stop in a way as a pass and you came out with this thing and it has turned the switch from off to on it's amazing can you touch on this concept of the arm frame i'm so happy i'm so happy you brought up brandon mccaffron because one of the things that i i tend to do whenever i think i've created something i'm like well nothing's really new like who else has done it and he's actually the only person i found when i was obsessing over this i've been obsessing over this since probably around a little before 2020, but like mostly 2020 through present. And he was the only person, he has this one video where he talks about it and does it pretty similar to how I do it with this elbow over hand. Most people frame hand over elbow and this flip putting the elbow over the hand. See, it's interesting because you're saying the arm frame. I, I call it the elbow frame mainly because the cue, I want to be about where the elbow is going. Almost all of us will naturally do something kind of like this to defend ourselves. And we have a tendency to grab and grab out for things. And I realized that was the first way that I did it, and it kind of got me mauled in the very beginning. And then I very quickly changed it to this bladed version that I did for quite some time. And then last year, I went to Hadra Gracie Winter Camp, and one of the coaches there's name is Ottavio Koto. And he had a whole class about how you're stronger in general in jiu-jitsu when your hands face yourself. And he had a whole class with a bunch of demos about you shouldn't be grabbing things. You should be, if you're trying to be strong structurally, turn your palms to yourself. And so I was like, well, I'm doing something where my hand is here. Let's just, let's see. Let's apply his concept to my thing. And then just the change, this was already really good. But the change to here was massive. Right. Can you describe for the listener what you're doing? The first version is that most of us do. You kind of have your elbow over your hand and you have the, your palm facing out, kind of as if you would in gi, like trying to grab stuff. And to me, that was the, the kind of 1.0 and it did not fare very well. The second version is almost as if you, you have like a chop going on, like uh, your pinky, uh, your thumb is facing your chest and your pinky is facing out. And then the last version is you turn your hand, um, I believe this is called supination. Yeah, you supinate your hand until your palm is facing yourself and your thumb is actually more more parallel to your body versus stabbing in. And this change structurally for my shoulder allows me to start pressing down on my opponent's scapula or trap or whatever region of them, depending on how they're driving into me. And that shift was massive. The second key change for me happened when last November, Nelson Puentes taught a class all about framing as well, but he taught the classic version with the hand over elbow. And, and he was teaching it against people doing double overs, kind of that Khabib style passing. Not so much body lock around the waist, but you know how Khabib goes double over the legs and climbs over and kind of walks chest side and I realized that the hand over the elbow frame is the solution to when they walk chest side but he was having problems when people walked backside at that point in my obsession over this I was having problems when people walked chest side and I realized oh whenever people are going towards my front hand over elbow when people are walking towards my backside elbow over hand well you think about what the body lock is usually people are, are hugging up getting really tight 
and they're usually jumping for your backside, not really for your front side when you do body lock passing. They'll flip both ways, but they tend to turn your hips away from you as they do so, which sets your arm up on the top to be elbow overhand. And really then it became a series of tweaks and alignments. And the motion actually is quite similar to a Turkish getup, with the main difference being that a Turkish getup, you tend to go straight up because you hold the weight right over your head. One of the guys who bought the instructional in my Facebook group had the idea of calling it a Turkish getaway, which I thought was kind of clever because it's like a Turkish getup, but you're always making space and sliding away. And that was actually the same key detail that I realized when I visited Chris's gym in England recently that like they had been doing it, but they kind of were doing it more Turkish getup style and having problems driving into each other. Once you kind of have the idea of being more of a bar of soap and not fighting your opponent, but slipping away from them, using their power to slide not just up, but away. That was the game changer. I think it really helped out the guys in Chris's gym and has been helping me out as well as I keep tweaking it and trying to find more options in being able to do it. Because a super important concept or concepts that you mentioned in that video, and I'm just referring to the Globetrotters one, I'm sure you do in the instructional as well, is one of pressure and no pressure. So yes. um, if you have someone coming at you and someone releasing your reactions to these things, please expand on that. Thank you for picking that up as well. So like, I've kind of become a big fan of not just having step-by-step -step details to do a move, but having a... I don't know if you're familiar with uh, UML charts or decision trees from, they're used in software development, they're used in business, they're used in any kind of organized process where you have a decision point and you ask yourself a question and then based on your answer to your own question, you respond differently. And I always try to simplify them as much as possible. You can make them really complicated and overwhelming, but the essence of this entire framing system to get up and attack is asking yourself the question, do I feel pressure? And by do I feel pressure, do I feel my opponent driving into me? Is there something impeding my ability to just stand up? If the answer is yes, then I should use their pressure and slide away. And the cue I use is moving into space, or in particular, not moving into space, rising into space. Because our head height, I want to end up eventually going from being underneath my opponent to being neutral with my opponent, to then eventually having my head higher than my opponent and shifting from defense to offense seamlessly. And then the question is, well, what happens if they try and juke you, right? They stop driving in to try and shuck your elbow by and take your back. If you keep single-mindedly doing what you're doing, they're going to take your back. So the second that pressure goes away, because they cannot get past your elbow frame without relinquishing the pressure on the frame. Every frame is only valuable if someone's leaning on it. If no one's leaning on the frame, it's just an arm waving in the air. It's not actually a frame. The second they release pressure on the frame, they've given me freedom of rotation. I can turn and either replace guard, pummel a foot in, or honestly, sometimes still just stand up. But I usually find when, when people are having problems in the beginning, it's because they're single-mindedly like, I must just stand up. And when their opponent isn't driving into them, oftentimes just replacing guard or at a minimum pummeling their foot in is the superior solution. But then you, you keep cycling through it again because your opponent might put pressure on, take it off, and cycle through various options. And so it's a very good guide. Do I feel pressure? If yes, rise into space. If no, replace guard or attack. Where can you utilize this? Can I utilize this from my back laying down? Can I utilize this standing up in between? Where does this apply? The kind of cool thing is it, is it really applies any time that your opponent is attempting to encroach on your space. I've started using my bones as like rangefinders. I fell into the obsession with the elbow frame, which is essentially using the humerus bone as my rangefinder. But this also works more classically if you think about what the knee elbow escape actually is. You're using your femur. You're sliding your knee across your opponent's, usually their belt line, and you're saying that they will be unable to 
get any closer to you than that exact space. And so that's all I'm doing here with my elbow frame as well, is keeping my opponent from getting too close. And so I can do it when they're passing my guard. The one of the key places I teach it is actually off a body block pass, like a completed body block class. But I can use it when my opponent shoots on me. I can use it anytime they want to get closer than I want them. I can usually fit my elbow into the space. There's other versions I teach now, which I might teach from in bottom side control or in bottom mount. But the base version was originally just dealing with someone passing you to side control. Bottom mount. Wow. So ironically, the bottom mount version is Chris Payne's old mount escape that he used to do. So way, way back. And he had a thing. I don't know if it was his idea or my idea. If you ask him, he'll tell a horrible version of this story as if I set him up with some sort of bounty on his head. He's being very dramatic. But that's not how it happened at all. But he had this beautiful mount escape where he would let anybody put him in any position. He would try and escape. And mount was one of them. And one of the things that he would do is he would either frame across the waist or he would simply, as he would say, get people out of his armpits. And so the original defensive jiu-jitsu style that I learned from Chris and also from Preet, the whole notion was about the armpit, mainly the armpit, right? I need to get people out of my armpits. And so in that, the base version was the zero point, which is always having armpits closed. Well, now we have a problem, right? If my armpits are always closed, how can I frame? And then I got good at it, but I was also really bad at it because I have big lats and I had a hard time really properly doing it. But I realized if I opened my elbow, it's not just about having my elbow or armpit closed. It's about not letting someone get into my armpit. So if I'm framing my elbow on your waist, you can't really move your hips into my armpit. I'm keeping that distance. But the key difference and what always had caused me problems and when I was first doing this is that I was cueing off my wrist. I was trying to push things with my wrist like most of us do. Like most of us, even if you're not super strong, when you touch something, ugh. but when I started collapsing my wrist and letting my elbow be the star, everything really started coming together. And I think that's the real cue is the tip of my elbow or the tip of my knee, which is directly connected to that larger bone, right? Like the tip of your knee is going to cue into your femur. The tip of your ankle won't. It's going to collapse. The tip of my elbow is going to cue into my humerus bone. The tip of my wrist won't. It will collapse. And that shift as to where I was applying the force was the massive change in the game for me. There are these tropes. The farther the elbow gets from the body, the weaker you are. Additionally, the other concern of showing the back. It's not so much that they're fallacies. It's that for me, they're kind of like the things that you, as an adult, tell your child. They're oversimplifications. You don't want your kid to become a drug addict. You tell them drugs are bad. You don't want your kid to get hit by the car. You tell them stay inside. And when your kid's small enough and they don't know things, like it's mostly true. But then you get older and you find counterexamples, right? Like I grew up in the dare generation. All drugs are bad. Marijuana is just as bad as cocaine. It's just as bad as methamphetamine. Like all the drugs are the same and they're all the devil right? Like that's the 1990s D.A.R.E. program. But then I got to college and I started meeting people like highly successful professionals, doctors, lawyers, all kinds of professionals who smoke cannabis regularly. And like not a small amount, like lots. Like, and these are highly successful people that aren't just sitting on the couch doing nothing. And even now, like many of the jiu-jitsu people I know that are immensely successful in jiu-jitsu and some of the hardest working people I know, they smoke weed. And so, well then I was, now it doesn't add up. Like is, is weed the devil? No, no, it's not but it does affect you and it affects everyone differently and i don't smoke weed very often because for me it doesn't do what it does for them but at the end of the day like it's not that simple if in general if i just started jiu-jitsu and i don't believe that i'm going to be able 
it's scary having someone behind you, right? And if I aren't, I'm not good at jiu-jitsu yet. And so if someone's behind me, they probably are going to take my back because that's the prerequisite for taking my back is being behind me. However, once I start closing off their means of attaching to me from behind, they're just behind me. The quote that really, I, I don't know if it was Preet or Chris, it was one of those guys that first said it, it was, you don't have my back, you're just behind me. And then for me, it's actually a guy named Alexander Neufong. He's also one of the Globetrotters instructors, and he has some, probably some of the strangest jiu-jitsu of anyone I've ever met. He's one of the most creative people in jiu-jitsu, just a, a wacky, zany guy in general. And I was rolling with him in Belgium. At, it was the first leg locker camp that had John Calistein and Aaron Millam. And he had this theory about planes not planes like um in the sky but planes like uh geometry planes it was that we were wa- he was watching some jiu-jitsu matches and we were noticing that like it's the idea of shifting on the planes i can't stay his version of the theory perfectly because it's not exactly mine but it was lit the fire inside of me to start thinking about this notion of dimensions I don't know if you're familiar with the thought experiment of a two-dimensional world, right? If you take a fish tank and you make it super, super thin where this fish could only swim up, down, and left, and right, but they could never enter the third dimension, they eventually would have no ability to fathom the third dimension. They would have no idea, and so you could only ever contain them up, down, left, or right. You could never contain them in the third dimension because it doesn't exist for them. But in jiu-jitsu, so if I do that, if I make it so that there is no piece of your body that overlaps my plane and I hold the inside of your wrist which is used in the dog leash maneuver that um Chris Payne's did and it keeps you from ever being able to penetrate that third dimension the only thing you'll be able to do it with is your other hand in my far armpit and so if I simply keep your outstretched hand if I hold the inside of your wrist and I hold it there so what I'm doing right now is I'm pantomiming holding the inside of someone's wrist so they'll be draped behind me they will feel as if they have my back but they will never be able to control me because to control me, they must enter my armpits. And so my view of jiu-jitsu now as a whole right now is the notion that my goal on defense in jiu-jitsu is to make my body into a shape that is hard to attach to. And the way that I do that is by denying you access to my major and minor spaces. I define my major space as the continuous space between my armpit and the back of my knee and my minor space at uh, space as the L formed by the crown of my head down to my shoulder. And in order to control me, you need control of either my major space or a massive control of my minor space. But in general, if you think of most of the pins in jiu-jitsu, they satisfy that. Mount, you're in the major space. Guard, you're in the major space. Knee on belly, you're in the major space. Back control, with the legs is the major space. Just a seatbelt, part major, part minor. Every single pin in jiu-jitsu uses these two spaces in concert. Leg locks, back of the knee, major space. There's almost no control that I can think of that is a pinning control that does not utilize this space. So if I'm holding the inside of your wrist, the thing you would usually control me with is that arm. Well, now you only have one arm. So if you only have one arm, you can probably try and poke your left hand, your, I'm, I'm using my right hand, you can poke your other hand under my armpit, but I have a free arm to defend my major space. And so as long as I can keep you from penetrating that third space, you can't keep me down. And that has been the conceptual framework that has inspired most of the discoveries that I've been making since then. It's hard to, like, I'm trying my best to do it verbally. I'm hoping that I do. But if you want to ever try it out, um, you can go to the YouTube video, BJ Fanatics, using frames that get a jail free card. There's a moment in there called dog leashing, where I talk about this. I'm doing standing dog leashing, where I'm trying to force people to kind of dance with me. It's kind of funny. Chris Payne says one where he does on the ground as well. And I always like to give credit to the people who inspired me down these roads. Even though the version of dog leashing that I do right now 
now is not Chris doesn't like doing it standing up. He likes doing it on the ground. I, and so like we end up diverting, right? But the inspiration to me, like Jiu-Jitsu is so amazing because there's so many people exploring different realms of it. And I see it like because like my background was studying physics in college and I never got into being a physics PhD or a researcher. So like I'm kind of lending that same spirit to jujitsu. Preet is obsessing and learning and exploring over there. And you have Lachlan Giles and Craig Jones who are exploring their own little avenues of jujitsu. And everybody's taking it in different directions. But there'll always be overlaps conceptually because there's only so many ways of controlling. Craig Jones came out with Just Stand Up right before Chris and I were going to put out our instructional and like we had delayed it because we wanted to have us both in the same country and do it and then he came out with it I'm like ah he beat us to the punch and I was so nervous but then I looked at it and I'm like he's not doing what we're doing like the idea is the same just stand up the notion by itself of you don't have to stay down jiu-jitsu is immensely powerful but I was so relieved I'm like awesome like we still have something to contribute because he's not doing it the way we're doing it which instantly made me realize like there's even more right like I've obsessed over this elbow being wedged in places Craig got into the octopus guard the reach around thing and like all those other ways of getting up and a lot of the concepts are the same, but I'm like, all right. So he went down that avenue. We went down this avenue. It's one of the, the sayings in science is there can be one of something. There can be zero of something, but there's never just two of something. Once there's two of something, it means there's many. There's never just two. So if there's, if there's only one way to do it, maybe. Once you find a second way, there's got to be a third way and a fourth way. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt forward slash subscribe. And check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your forever white belt swag at teespring, teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Check us out on YouTube now at forever white belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. I want to go back to Dog Leash because that was something I wanted to discuss in depth with you. You mentioned the dance and you do show some Dog Leash concepts in the elbow frame video on BJJ Globetrotters on YouTube. It's really nice because it does look like a dance in a way. Natasha's like right behind you as you're uke and she's holding your wrist and you're doing this thing which I found really interesting with your left hand. She has your right hand extended out and you're doing this thing where you're sort of brushing off of hip grip someone would sort of go for on you. Can you discuss that bit and uh, the, do the dog leash in general yeah yeah so so for me the idea is that because of the fact that there's these certain areas that are so much more valuable than others i only really care about them so like if natasha were to control something else it wouldn't matter to me i can completely ignore it i know that what she needs to control to cause me problems is my left hip or my left armpit so i simply just keep on removing it i'm preemptively using another concept actually a concept that i learned from my time in striking martial arts it's done in boxing kickboxing it's the idea of a checking hand it's that my hand isn't exactly like in the case of like a turtle your arm is directly hiding your armpit. But when you're standing and there's so much space, I can't be mobile and shell up. So my hand has to move around and guide itself and, and defend not only my armpit, but also my hip and whatever else she might do. But the irony is that I find that there's also a psychological thing. There's something about just kind of like 
making someone fail repeatedly in the same way that reduces not just like their ability, but like their their confidence in their strategy. And because of the fact that a lot of this framing system and the dog leash and all of it, it's kind of breaking the unspoken rules in jiu-jitsu. The unspoken rule in jiu-jitsu is that when I try to go for your back, you're going to try and square up and stop me because I don't want you on my back. But if I don't at all, then people are confused for a moment. They're like, oh, either this guy just sucks. He might just be bad at jiu-jitsu and he's giving me a gift. Or like, what does he know that I don't? Like, like what, what is making him so confident? And in the case of that, it might just be, they might take it under, oh, he's just arrogant. He thinks he's so good that he can give me his back and doesn't matter. And that usually makes people mad. Or they think that it's a trap. And so then they're less likely to go ahead. But either way, the notion of giving people pieces of what they want versus denying them everything has been a really big one in allowing me to shift from defense to offense. Because if you have a perfect defense where you shut down every opportunity for your opponent to ever attach to you at all, then they can't attack. They can't do anything. And if they can't attack, they can just be like, well, you know what? If you're going to have a great guard, I'll have a great guard too. And it's the equivalent of two boxers holding their hands in their chain, just, just circling. And no one ever throws a punch because no one ever finds an opening. Well, I have to give you something, right? I have to give you some piece of what you want to get you to come out of your shell. And when are people the most vulnerable? When they're attacking. You know, like when I think I have you, I'm not thinking about you having me. And so almost all of my offense works easier off this. When I try to be a regular jiu-jitsu practitioner and do what we've learned, do a takedown, pass, take mount, take the back, submit. Don't get me wrong. Like I've been doing jiu-jitsu for a long time. I know the meat and potatoes classic jiu-jitsu, but it'll take me quite some time to slowly wear you down, break through your defenses, occupy your armpits, isolate a limb or your neck. And I can do it, but I think about the amount of effort, both mentally and physically that goes into that. Comparatively speaking, if I simply let you have what you think you want and wait for you to get greedy, chances are you're going to overextend yourself. And then I have you in a much deeper entanglement because you, in your attempt to entangle me, have entangled yourself. Because a lot of positions in jiu-jitsu, even if they're not symmetrical, are complementary. You know, so the, the complementary nature of back takes and leg locks. If you're attempting to take my back, you are making yourself vulnerable to be leg locked, at least in transition. Can you touch on that a bit, this theory? Because I've heard you, or this concept, I should say, of asymmetrical and symmetrical concepts in relation to jiu-jitsu, and why is it important to understand that? Yes, yeah, so I think it's really important to understand what options you have and what options your opponent has. And the way that I've used it, so we'll, first we'll do asymmetrical and symmetrical, right? So there's the obvious symmetrical positions of jiu-jitsu. Like the, most, the first one that'll come to mind is 50-50, right? It's even in the name. It's symmetrical. Then if you're sticking with legs, you have mutual ashi, which if you're not familiar, I have a straight ankle lock, you have a straight ankle lock, and we're almost in an unfortunate scissoring position. And so that's where we are. But then you think to other ones, right? Like um, the truck is another example, right? When someone puts someone in the truck, there's the expression, you're going to flip the truck on them because your feet are in a symmetrical pattern where whatever this person gets on you, you can also get on them. It's all kind of like a battle for who has the knee line. Kimuras, however... Some people don't realize a lot of times the Kimura trap is symmetrical because the back of my tricep is on the back of your tricep. And once again, it's just who has the elbow line. If I have control of your elbow line, I'm the one in charge of the Kimura trap. But you can very easily switch that around on me very quickly. And now you're the one with in charge of the Kimura trap. In stand-up, you have Osotogari, famously in judo. What's the counter to Osotogari? Osotogari. Or Osotogaishi if you're trying to be technical. It's just understanding like in general, if it's right on right and we're in the same way, that's probably symmetrical. 
But then asymmetrical positions, for a long time I kind of thought about the notion of them always necessarily being kind of dominant subordinate, right? Like, if I'm doing neon belly on you, chances are I think I'm pretty dominant, right? Like, I have what I want, I'm on top, I have gravity on my team. This is a very dominant spot. But structurally, even though I'm dominant, there's alignments where your decision to do that give me a path to attack you, whether it be spinning underneath the 50-50 or rising up into a cross-ashi or what, what have you. Like there's always an alignment that this person's offense is giving me some offense of my own, even if it's not the exact same offense. And I begin to organize those types of pairs into things that I call complementary positions. Just like back in uh, geometry, two angles that add up to 90 degrees are complementary angles. Complementary positions, they're not symmetrical because it's not the same, right? Like if you try to bear and bolo me, I have a backstep knee bar on you. That's not the same. I don't have a bear and bolo on you. But in the same regard, as I'm trying to go for a knee bar on you, if you shift your hips out, or really most leg locks, you have a bolo. It might not be the beautiful traditional bolo, but at least a wedge bolo or some kind of back take because of the nature of how our hips are associated with each other. Which kind of brings me to my next point and how I'm able to utilize this because it is at the same time kind of playing with fire because I'm giving you this person who I'm rolling with who knows jiu-jitsu as well and has techniques because this is really only valid in the case of grappling a grappler. If I'm doing this in a self-defense context, or the context of facing off with a kickboxer or some other person who does not grapple, well, I don't need to think this way because they're not trying to grapple me. I don't need to know what they're not. Pl- they're just trying to hit me or trying to stand back up. So because their motivations are different, this thought process isn't quite as necessary. But a grappler on grappler situation, we both want the same things. We both want to occupy the same real estate. We both want to isolate the same things. And so because it's essentially almost a mirror match, in our desires, not necessarily even in our styles, I can begin figuring out, well, I need a checklist. I need to know, not the entire checklist, because the problem with checklists is it's very easy for them to get bloated. If someone tells you, what are the things you need to do to finish a triangle? They can keep listing 10, 20, even 30 things as they get nitty gritty enough for their perfect version of the leg triangle. But we don't want that. We want, uh, like in software development, the idea of an MVP, a minimal viable product. We want the minimum that they need, and then we want to deny them one of those minimum things. So in the case of an arm triangle, what do I need? I need the head and arm isolated. I generally need access to your arteries, and I need a particular angle. And then you can debate if you need the posture broken. Posture broken is going to make your life way easier. Though there are some people who pull off triangling people that are postured up. So I'm not going to put that one as the most important. But posturing up definitely will help you not get triangled. So now I know it's those three things. Angle. Head and arm isolation, which I could probably refine to saying depth and uh, posture. And so now, if I want to escape a triangle, what I'm going to do, or if I want to almost use a triangle against you, I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you my head and arm. I'm going to give you that depth that you want. Maybe even I'll break my own posture now, but I'm never going to give you the angle you need. So even though you have two out of those three things, then you, you might try stuff. Now, mind you, it's still a risky proposition. You might arm lock me inside of there. You might do transition to my back. There's, this is not a exercise that is without risk. But to me, finding those checklists and then experimenting with them and purposely denying, okay, okay, fine, that didn't work out. Let's try it again. And then I'll play with a different variable. And usually what I'll find in a generalist position is that there's one variable that it's easiest for me to hide from you, that I can give you the rest of the variables and just hide that one for you. In the case of people taking my back, everyone knows that they want to be in my armpits and have that seatbelt. Not even just in my armpits. People love the seatbelt. The seatbelt is by no means the only way of controlling the back. 
but I think it's safe to say it's the most popular. And so everyone wants a seatbelt. Well, to have a seatbelt, you have to, in, at least in Nogi, connect your hands. So what, what is a dog leash doing? It's never allowing you to connect your hands. I am denying you that connection, such that even if eventually you get everything else. So let's back up a second and give the checklist that I would state for back control. And I think one of them might surprise you. We're going to find out. So one of them, once again, is angle, right? You want your chest behind them. Another one is, I'm going to call it the third dimension or penetration. You have to poke through that third dimension and have the ability to pull. If I cannot pull or hug or squeeze, back control becomes very hard. Think about, imagine yourself attempting, whether it be with arms or legs, to hold someone's back simply by pushing. Very, very hard. Right? Very, very hard. Unless you're just way bigger than them and they're flat on their belly and you're just sitting on them and your weight is enough to keep them down by pushing. But that's, most jiu-jitsu people would, would get their knees underneath them and they would escape. So whether it be with my hooks or something in the armpit, I need to get into that space and pull. But here's the last one. And this is the one that I deny to people the most. And that is relative hip height. Almost everybody in jiu-jitsu wants to get their hooks in, or at least one hook or a body triangle. But in all of those examples, their hips must be higher than mine. So even if I completely crap the bed, you pass my frame, I screw up my dog leash, you lost all of it, and you have some control of my upper body and you have one hook in. If I continually hip heist my other hook such that my other hip is always above your hip, you will not only never get the second hook, you will never get a body triangle, and you will never get deep control. And so while I'm denying you that hip height that you need, I can also be getting you out of my major space with your arms. Because I messed up, right? I've messed up, you're behind me. I lost the grip, I can close my hand, and I can use my free hand to begin pummeling. I can hold your hand and pummel my elbow back inside. Now mind you, once again, there is nothing that is without risk. I learned the hard way rolling with a high-level guy. I did all of this, I was free, or so I thought. And then I learned that at the highest level of jiu-jitsu, the neck is entirely unnecessary for rear naked chokes. Some people are very, very comfortable just breaking your teeth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned that the very, very hard way. Because I thought I was out. I had hip heisted. I was on my way out. And they just caught me right across my teeth. Almost like a dog with a bone had their wrist inside of my teeth and, with, and just clamped on and made a gable grip. And had enough of a squeeze... That I had a proposition. I could have gotten out without being strangled, but I would have been less a few teeth. And obviously, in a random open mat, maybe perhaps, right? It's the ADCC World Championships, and it's the finals. And if I have three seconds left, I just have to spit my teeth out. I'm going to win. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll take that, that gamble for, you know, the, the life of glory that comes afterwards. But in open mat, I learned very quickly that that jaw crank and that teeth crush, it was not a proposition I want. And I thought about it. And I made me realize, but once again, these are edge cases. Nothing is perfect. Everything can be beaten, and that's the beauty of jiu-jitsu. But with the exception of having someone break my teeth off, generally speaking, the way it goes is I heist my hips. Now that my hips are higher than yours, I simply need to keep you out of that space. So if I frame on your hip, now you can no longer chase me, and I can change my ankle and look where I am. You have one hook. If you have one hook, and I've heisted my other hip over, you've given me access to your other leg, and I'm going to begin threatening a leg on you. Whether it be a saddle entry or a backside 50 entry, I'm going to begin threatening you. Now, mind you, you can extract your leg and, and we'll still keep jockeying for that angle. But by gaining the victory in the hip height, I tend to find that I can win the angle much more easily. When someone is up high 
right? And they have my arms stretched over my head. And they're using their feet as hands, right? Their feet and their hands versus my arms. It's very hard for me to win that battle. I might slip out, right? Sweat might be in my favor that day. Might side out, might turn around, might accidentally break rib turning around, as you've seen people do when they get body triangled and they're like, ha ha, EBI overtime is over and I'm down a rib. It's a way out, like I said, the context matters. If it's EBI and it's the finals and I gotta get out, all right, I might I might sacrifice a rib to Valhalla for this match, right? That might be what I have to do, but that can't be my first line of defense. That can't be my first thought. And so this hip height thing, this notion of thinking about hip height has been really valuable. I've been so blessed with my time in BJJ Glowtrotters because there's so many people who in their classes I get to watch have just said little things like I very rarely am just going to take someone's class wholesale and just try to install it in my game not that I, it wouldn't be valuable just I don't have the mental space I have so many projects of my own that I'm obsessing over that to take someone else's class and just wholesale install it in my game it's very hard to find the time to do that I've done it occasionally over the years. Like the root of my leg locking game came from a Gary Tonin seminar forever ago. And it was beautiful. Like I said, always give credit to Danaher guys for just being great teachers. Even though Gary doesn't always get the credit as the best of the teachers, I learned so much from that three hours. And so that day, the three hours massively shaped my leg locking game, right? So that's the example of installing a, a system into your game and then growing with it. So back to what I was saying, Wim Deputer has this notion about the sweet spot, because he was teaching a class on, on escaping back. And everyone historically used to say that there's one side to escape the back. And then now we've also realized, obviously, right, that like you can escape both ways, which means you can also hold it both ways. When truthfully, what is it really? You want to keep them in a sweet spot. If they over-exaggerate one way or the other, it's hard to control them. Most of jujitsu, we don't want too much of anything. It's that nice sweet spot. Not too high, not too low. Same thing in the back. So I said hip height before getting too high by hip heisting. In the same regard, if I screw up and someone gets there and I can hold your feet open, I can slide my hips too low where you can't keep my back anymore. Now, mind you, that's dangerous because I might have saved myself from back control and ended up in a rear triangle. And a lot of people are getting really good at those rear triangles these days. So you can do it, but just it's always kind of like understand the new dangers along the way. But I'm a really big fan of that. For me, what makes jiu-jitsu fun especially in the moments when I'm failing, right? Like it's easy for jujitsu to be fun when you're the hammer. And being a black belt now, and especially like having been so long, like most, I, I get to be the hammer more than the nail these days. Or as my friend liked to say, the, the pigeon versus the statue, right? Like I get to be in the, in the more fun role. But that's not the way that you get better. That's just the way that you have fun. I, I have to be the nail. I have to be the one suffering to get better. I have to have problems. And I like to lose differently. If this person, like back, back when there was a guy at my gym who would triangle me every time. He was a triangle monster, my friend Larry. Well, fine. I'm going to make you triangle me differently. I'm going to make you do something different because now I know I have an answer, right? Like I have a way out of your amazing thing that you're good at because most people you roll with have something that they're dangerous with. Unless you're rolling with a brand new person with no physicality because even a day one beginner with no experience, if they are an athlete, there's a piece of them that is dangerous from whatever they've done with their life. If I can not let you get me with that thing and make you do something else, now I've made the chain a little longer. The road to defeating me now takes you longer. It used to be you get to my back, you rear naked choke me. Now that you get to my back, I escape, you, you leg triangle me. All right, this path that gets me leg triangled might not be the path out, but I'm no longer a one, like a two move win for you. I'm now a three move win for you. And now I can think about that I know, because if, if I know where you will be, I can prepare. 
versus you putting it on me. So I know that if I attempt to slide out the bottom, you're going to attempt to isolate one of my arms and triangle me. All right, well then I can proactively make sure that my arms are together. If I have two arms together, you can't triangle me, at least not in the traditional sense. Maybe you can do some maneuver with like a hand in or something, but you're not going to get me with the conventional version of this move. I'm going to make you freestyle. And I find that is kind of the only way to hang with elite level competition. When I'm facing off against someone who's an ADCC caliber athlete or a world champion or anybody like that, even if it's just open match, even if it's just a match for fun, if the match involves me letting them funnel me into what made them that guy or that girl, it's probably going to go badly for me unless I'm really, really lucky that the thing that made them that guy or that girl just so happens to be my specialty in defending it. And even then, my strength versus your strength is going to be a long roll. Even if I don't get submitted, I'm going to be exhausted. Best example is I just recently got to teach at Inverted Gear Academy with Nelson Puentes. And Nelson is a very good wrestler, very, very good, has amazing top pressure. And I taught, he asked me to teach a seminar on this elbow frame and butt judo at his gym. And the day before, we were rolling, and the match consisted of him essentially like just driving me into the mat. And then me scrambling up and him knocking me back down. For five minutes, it was the scramble of both of us in our strength. I feel my elbow frame is my strength. For him, being able to hold people down and pressure them is his strength. And we both spent five minutes in our opponent's strength. And at the end of it, we both were soaking wet and exhausted. And it was 10-round Friday. So we both each still had, I think it was like the second round of the day, we both still had eight more rounds with hard opponents left for the day. We were exhausted. So even though I was where I wanted to be, because he also was where he wanted to be, we both paid a high price for the engagement being in our opponent's strength. So that being said, if I can deeply understand means of funneling the match away from why you're a world champion, from why you're that guy or that girl, suddenly the match is way easier because jiu-jitsu is too big. The age of well-rounded athletes is here, right? The Rotula brothers can do just about anything. People like Craig Jones, Gordon Ryan can do just about everything. No one's like, haha, I'm going to make Gordon Ryan try an Americana me and he's going to fail. No, like the best people in jiu-jitsu right now are no longer complete specialists. They might have areas that they're better than than the rest of the world, but they don't have the gaping holes that we used to have, right? Like where someone can only play on top and you put them on their back and they're just fish. There might be still some people that exist in that level, but most people are pretty complete. But they still have areas where they're that guy. And I don't want to have the match happen in that area if my goal is victory. Conversely, if my goal is growth, if I want to see why you're that guy, right? So whenever I roll at Globetrotters with a high-level wrestler, it's like, all right, today's a day of pressure testing my framing system against a high-level wrestler. Let's see if I die. So you have to, it's like the inverse. When I, when my goal is growth, all right, let's dive into where, where you're the man and see if what I've been building in this conceptual framework is good enough. Why? I try to make myself a master of freestyling. By living and dying by concepts versus by singular moves, I should be able to reason my way through and freestyle. Going back to what I said, If I can take you out of your specialty, I'm going to make you freestyle. I'm going to make you come up with a solution to my jiu-jitsu on the fly. And you might do a great job at that. But no matter how good a job you do at that, it will not be as good as that combo that you've drilled a thousand times that I don't want to be a part of. Because I've seen people, especially it's usually purple belts. Purple belts have their combo. And that's their combo. They open every, like a good competition purple belt. They're going to have a nasty combo. 
something that if they start and put every ounce of their youth, athleticism, and spirit behind, and I let them in that, it's almost unstoppable. And if my goal is to grow, let's see it. Show me, show me your most powerful. You might, you might catch me with it. But if I, if I want to win, if my goal is to to defeat this pattern, to defeat this strategy, then I'm going to make you freestyle. I'm not letting you get to that that superpower you have, that super weapon you have. I'm going to make you do the rest of your jujitsu that's probably going to be on par with your actual skill level, which is purple belt. And in theory, unless I get too old, I should win. I'm still 30. I just turned 37, so I'm feeling slightly older than I did a few weeks, a few days ago. But I find that that's kind of the way because most people in jiu-jitsu are not that great at being true freestylers. There's examples of certain people, like Jeff Lover is a famous freestyler. Jeff Lover has all kinds of amazing freestyle movements he does. Tenth Planet guys in general tend to be good freestylers because the nature of their system is to find unique and weird ways of doing stuff. But people that are stuck in, in orthodoxy that have those razor sharp combos, they tend to be slightly less good in the freestyling realm. And so if I can make it about that, I, with my less sharp obsession on those things, can hopefully hang. Yeah, sure. If you're a great jazz musician, great. If not, yeah. it's not going to be a good night. You know, it's funny that you mentioned this because uh, a line that keeps coming up is in the movie Fight Club with me that I've been mentioning the, and realizing the importance of is uh, we're going to assign you some homework. Your homework today is going to be to get in a fight and lose the fight. Yeah. And um, I've been thinking about a lot of things because obviously we all lose a lot when we're at the lower ranks. And then you realize the importance of that. And you've touched on that. And what I'm trying to understand and articulate to others is, um, and if I could get your input on, is how can we train late stage defense? Yes. Um, you've been on fire with these questions. I remember the first time I came on your show, like just all these things that I've been obsessing over recently. It's like you're in my head. So um I can't say it's mine. I listened to the Hydra Gracie interview on um, Lex Friedman, and he talked about how mount was the best position, right? Mount, 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 and almost everyone disagrees with him, but obviously he, you have to take the opinion of someone with that kind of results with um, some respect. So this past December, what I did was obsess over mount. And I, I did this thing that I call 30 minutes of suffering that I had to do every day as like my jiu-jitsu vitamins to um, keep myself going. And he had talked about it on both Lex Friedman and other things about how when he was competing, how he trained to get himself sharp. And what he said was that he would start out in a position like mount on bottom. And for five minutes, he would have to escape that position. And his opponent's job was to tap him out as many times as they could, obviously without breaking him, but as many times as he could. And then he would switch and he would get five minutes on top, but he emphasized it needed to be five minutes. So that you had the opportunity for the same scenarios to happen over and over again. So your mind could recognize the patterns. We tend to do specific training for like one or two minutes a lot. Or EBI overtime rounds. But then extrapolating into all the pins. So what I started doing was that same thing. But because of the fact that obviously I'm a black belt and most of the people at the gym are not. Uh, the proposition of me asking them if I can be in mount on them for five minutes attacking them. And they go back to mount whenever they escape. No one really wanted that gig. No one was really very interested in that offer. But when I offered people, hey, you're going to be on mount on me for five minutes. And every time I do anything good, you get to have mount again. That was far more attractive to people. So I did that with mount, left side control, right side control, back, and left leg and right leg. I wanted to do it every day. I was not as consistent as I would have liked. But what I found was it helped both of us. So while I was getting better at my, at my escapes, especially on my, on my weaker spots, 
especially in the case of the legs, one of my training partners just started getting really good at catching me to the point where like when we started doing this, they didn't catch me. It took me a long time to get out, but they didn't catch me. But by the end, they would catch me a couple times every single time that I went after it. But the only reason that worked was because there was a trust between us. This wasn't a random stranger. This was somebody that I knew. He knew the goal of this was not victory. The goal of this for him was to get better at his leg attacks or his left side control, whatever it was. There were other people who helped me, but he's the person who comes to mind because I worked with him more than other people. I saw him improving on the offensive side. But for me on the defensive side, because I know that this person is supposed to tap me out. They're supposed to win. Do I need to keep my ego and just, ha ha ha, person who's supposed to be trying to help me get better. You didn't catch me, but I just do the same thing over and over again. Or do I want to try and get out as fast as possible and get to offense as fast as possible? And in the process, I'm going to make some mistakes. I'm going to get caught. So I got subbed way more often than I usually do. But my progress went way better. So I think talking about late stage escapes in general, it goes deeper than that. So that was how this started last December. At this point, now it's a training method that I call not just progressive resistance, but progressive specific resistance. So if I want to deal with the kind of person who wants to straighten my arm immediately, I need to tell my opponent, hey, or my partner, I want your mindset to be that you're in a rush. I want you to be rushing to straighten my arm. And I'm going to try and deal with that. And next person, I want instead of that, and mind you, like this is someone who I trust that's not going to bridge through because their job is to straighten my arm and then they have to keep it isolated. If they keep it isolated and I can't turn my shoulder or turn my wrist, well, chances are they can armbar me eventually. And if I can turn my shoulder, once again, checklist, always going back to the checklist. What do they need? Well, they obviously need my arm to be straight. They need, once again, a certain angle and a certain depth. As you can see, the checklist for many positions begins to be overlap. Whenever there's overlap, your mind is really good at being like, oh, it's all the same. It's not all exactly the same, but the similarities help your mind. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to try my best to get back one of those variables to keep myself safe. And occasionally they're going to do the right thing because at the same time, in order for me to keep getting better, I can let them organically get better by just doing this to me. But if I notice that I'm getting out in a way that I could stop if I was them, I just tell them, hey, if I were you, I would grab the thumb pad. If you grab the thumb pad, I can't rotate my wrist anymore. It's going to be way harder for me to escape this armbar. So now I've just upgraded the skill of the person I'm dealing with. Now, mind you, if I do a bad job teaching them, I might make them worse, which is very dangerous because now I'm, I'm working against myself. And so to me, it's having understanding, like just sitting down intellectually and being like, on the offensive side, what do I need? Then try, try doing the offensive side yourself to other people and take away variables, put variables back in. All right, I'm going to see if I can do an arm bar without having any far shoulder control. If I just have near shoulder, can I, can I do an arm bar that way? And then if I can, all right, how would I escape? Now give them what you would do. Turn them into a you. Crap, I can still do it. Now we're going to have you do it to me. And the more that you have these little moments where you had a goal, right? I find that like having a goal for what you're doing training, even a tiny goal, like I want to learn something new about knee bars today. That tiny goal is going to take you far because it's your mind still works on it in the background if you don't succeed in the class. So I would say if I can make it more clear how I work on late stage escapes. In a specific training, isolation, where there are clearly defined win conditions for both, I do so with clearly defined measures of increased resistance. 
So you can increase your intensity and you can increase your sophistication. So I can ask you to be super high sophistication, super low intensity. This lowers my chance of injury, but it also intellectually makes it very challenging. Or I can flip it the other way. I want you to be the spazzy white belt. I want you to have super high intensity, but super low sophistication. I should be able to overcome someone doing everything wrong in the armbar, but going really fast. In theory, I should be able to overcome that. Is this where I'm going to start my adventure into arm bars? Of course not. This is later down the road because intensity is where danger comes. But because this person, in fact, is not a spazzy white belt or an unsophisticated person, they're just playing the part, they can add intensity with the safety of they're not actually bridging through my arm and breaking it. But they're going to give me that heart attack as they jerk my arm straight a million miles an hour and make me realize, oh, okay, you can break my grip really easy if I grab like that. Or do I care if you break my grip? Should I be holding my hands at all? Is this universally this, this, like, this agreed upon notion of gable gripping or rear naked choking our hand the only way? Can I depart from that? And if you look, if you saw Quintet recently, J-Rod, in my opinion, even though he didn't submit anybody, had one of the most impressive performances just in his movement and his ability to pass guards and move and escape arm bars in particular. It was really, really impressive to me when I, when I watched him. It's actually the same escape that Nicky Rod did at the last UFC fight pass. And it's actually the same mistake that if you look at, it's the reverse hitchhiker that I learned from Chris Payne's and then Preet Nicholson has it on one of his instructionals and uh, Wim DePewter also does it. Just the notion of turning your hand down. Oh, what's his name? Sean Applegate, Black Belt. His name is evading me. He also does it. It's killing me. He did it in EBI. And everyone's like, oh, he has a rubber arm. No, he doesn't. He understands that when you turn your thumb downward, the elbow's in the wrong spot. He understands that by making your arm parallel to your body, it's harder to get tapped. He understands that making your shoulder a higher fulcrum makes it hard to be broken. And so as you deepen your understanding as to what your opponent needs, if your opponent is simply still trying to make the shape, right? Most of us, when we first learn jiu-jitsu, our coach does something. We try to make our body into the shape that our coach just made. Making the shape, I think, is the most primitive level of jiu-jitsu understanding. But if you get really, really good at making a shape, you can actually go really far with a primitive understanding if you get your body mechanics, power, speed, and coordination dialed in. Even if you don't have a supreme understanding of why and how something works, if you make the shape like a true jiu-jitsu great, like someone who's great, if you emulate Hafa Mendes or you emulate Cobrinha, even if you have no idea what you're doing, that emulation will be effective because the things you're emulating are effective. You will have a hard time self-improving because you don't know why you're great, but you will still be effective. But when someone does an orthodox escape that you've never seen before, right? Like how is the, the discussion is usually talked about in a gym. What's the counter? Oh, well, the counter for this is that. What's the counter of the counter? Oh, well, the counter for that counter is this. As long as you are stuck in the paradigm of counter for counter, you must memorize these hundreds of discrete techniques. That's going to eventually cause a mental overflow. At least it does for me. Maybe some people, like I, I, I do believe in the research done about human memory and human mind, right? Like a, a chess grandmaster has no greater ability to understand the number of pieces on the board as you. They just have bigger chunks. If I can increase my chunks, I can remember more. Well, what's easier to remember? A through line that all these escapes have in common, which is one chunk, or all 15 discrete escapes. That digestion of the understanding allows me the power to save space for other things. And so, so for me, it's not just the time spent with someone you trust. It's the mental time spent thinking about what went right, what went wrong, why did it go right? 
and then having a plan for next time. And this doesn't have to be formal. You don't have to have a notebook. Some people have notebooks. It's great for them. But I can't be a hypocrite. I don't really have a notebook. I have my cell phone with a notes app and I write down some stuff in it and I will almost never look at those notes. But the act of writing those notes down, for me, that's the digestion. That's like putting it from short-term to long-term. The fact that I wrote it down, some piece of my subconscious says, oh, he wrote that down. Don't forget that. And that works for me. But those little moments of reflection, for me, combined with the trust. And then you're going to create what it is for you, for your drilling habits. And to bring it back into something that's kind of become popular right now, what I'm talking about is essentially like a guided ecological approach, which Greg Sounders has become like the man recently that everyone's talking about with that. And for me, it's very powerful because it allows your students to create their own. That being said, I do believe there's a value in technique. I believe it's always going to have to be both because standing on the shoulders of giants has a value, right? Like there's a reason why the Danaher systems or there's a reason why people who come from elite level gyms have a general advantage in the competition scene at the lower levels and at the higher levels to the extent that they are not having to reinvent everything themselves. Now they lose out, like I said, like you're talking about playing jazz. If you're a concert pianist in a symphony your entire life, your abilities, your technical abilities are going to be really, really sharp and really, really high. However, if you've been reading the sheet music and just doing what you've been told and never had to compose anything yourself, you're going to struggle if someone asks you to play jazz piano. Will you go to adapt? Of course you will. That's the power of these games. And I don't believe the ecological approach is just games. But I do believe the guiding with specific parameters and specific goals that are not simply win is valuable. If your goal is to isolate the shoulder because you want the elbow and you have lots of games for that, but then you flip it. I'm on defense. I'm going to deny isolation of my shoulder and see what he does if he can't have it. And so you're constantly playing red team, blue team. Now, I'd be remiss if I don't mention bot judo. Yes, it's so much fun. I finally got a butt judo toss the other day, and it was because of you. Can you please touch on butt judo? What is it? What are you, what are you referring to? So butt judo is just a clever name. Honestly, I, I came up with the name when I was in Poland in a minibus being transported from the airport with a bunch of other Globetrotters people to Zen Camp. And I was kind of lamenting the fact that there were things I wanted to teach in Globetrotters, but the nature of Globetrotters is I don't choose exactly what I teach. I put five topics up. And then everyone votes. And if nobody votes for what I want to teach, I guess I could just lie and teach it under another name. But if I'm being honest with the process, I don't get to teach it. And there is stuff I really wanted to teach. But I'm like, I have to think of a name that people will vote for. And I was brainstorming and Butt Judo came up and the entire car erupted in laughter. And I'm like, okay, okay, this is sticky. Someone's going to, this is going to actually get voted for. And sure enough, the next time I put that name in a Globetrotters camp as a choice, it was voted for. But all Butt Judo is is kind of just like an easier version of regular judo because of the fact that by being on my butt or my knee or anywhere that's not already standing and by the nature of trying to stand up, being that bar of soap that's slipping away from them, I'm going to make them chase me. And once you chase me, or overextend yourself due to either the fact that you're behind me and you think that I'm stupid, or the fact that I'm sliding away from you, you don't want me to stand up. You've done the kazushi for me, right? In standing judo, I must kazushi you. So, I mean, I guess if I was going to make it in a traditional sense, essentially gaeshi waza, right? Gaeshi means counter or reversal. I don't need to do the kazushi. So because I've taken the kazushi out of it, all I have to do is the implementation of the various throws because you've usually overextended yourself, put yourself out of position, And I'll slide up with my elbow on your neck or my elbow in your armpit and get the world's least impressive 
Tayatoshi. Because you're falling like tiny, tiny space and really, really slow. And it's not at all. But it's actually important that butt judo is unimpressive. If you attempt to do the amount of power and force that you need to throw someone who has base and is standing, you will overthrow yourself. And you'll get re-rolled almost every time. Every time I teach butt judo to an actual judoka who knows real judo, the first time they do it, they'll do what judoka do in a judo match, which is roll through, which in a judo match is ippon. But a jiu-jitsu match is pulling bottom side control. One of these is significantly more valued than the other. So the idea that I'm not doing a massive push, I'm usually just using the fact that they're off balance, attaching to them, and just doing often the, the classic Kodokan throws. In the case of the, the forward throws, in the case of the reverse throws, Sumigaishi and variants of Sumigaishi are my baby. When I did judo, they were my tokuiwaza. They were my specialty. And they're frankly just everywhere. In that process I talked about where if they do, they stop chasing me. If there is no pressure, I'm going to replace guard. Well, I don't go back to close guard or even regular butterfly guard. I pummel my foot in to a reverse butterfly sweep. I call it reverse butterfly sweep. Adam Warzynski does a similar sweep, but his knee's on the other side. But it's, it's my knee is across. I'm grabbing the back, grabbing the arm, and I'm kind of doing a bus driver maneuver, and the person flies. Some people call it wing. I call it reverse butterfly is my name for it. But essentially what it is, is it's, it's sumigaishi just from your butt or from your knee. And the options from there are, are just so big. But then we go into the last option, right? Which is from Preet's panda position or seated, seated turtle position. People, when you sit on your butt and you let them behind you, they immediately think this guy's a moron. And if they overextend and they go for your neck, you can snatch your elbow pit into their armpit and suddenly, a Seiwinagi or a Katagaruma is there with so much less effort than you've had to do standing. And so, mind you, like anything in Jiu-Jitsu, there's a shelf life. If you do this to people long enough, they will stop overextending. In which case, you don't get the satisfying thud of throwing someone with Bachiro. But if they stop overextending, how can they stop you from standing up? So you just get to stand up. That's the beautiful thing. Like, everything has a counter. But if I put you in these dilemmas, it's essentially the notion of defensive dilemmas. If I put you in a dilemma that you must chase me, and if you do, I'm going I'm to leg lock you or throw you. And if you don't, well, you're not going to get to be on top anymore. You no longer get to be the one who wields gravity. And that's the way that I've been thinking about being on top. Being on top is not the only thing, but if I'm on top, I get to wield gravity. I get to cause pressure and pain without effort. And if that's not an advantage, I don't know what is. And the second my head is higher than yours, I get to wield gravity. You know, as an old, an upper master's player, let's say, you're going to beat me to the technical stand-up probably every time. So this concept has been so helpful where I don't have to race up, right? Nope, it's not a race because they're helping you get up. Their uh, youthful vigor is helping you stand up, especially once you make the shift. Because like I said, version 2.0 was here with my pinky out. When you make the shift to palm up, you realize you're almost always leaning down. And once you lean down, you realize their forward force, like a ramp, is being translated into upward force for you. They're quite literally helping you stand up. And so once you stop fighting them and just let your hand collapse and let your elbow do the work, it's a magical moment of like, oh, they're just picking me up. This is fabulous. So Charles, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're up to? Beautiful. My website is up to date. It's charlesharriet.com. So any seminar that I have will be right on there. You just click on the events button and you'll find out where I am. I'm going to be at BJJ Globetrotters Arizona camp. I will be teaching in Portland and Tampa coming up soon. And beyond that, 
BJJ Fanatics, type in Charles Harriet. There are four instructionals currently there. Uh, Leglocks 101, The Art of Inversion, Unstoppable Stand-Ups with Chris Paynes, and then Defense to Offense, Attacks from the Elbow Frame, which includes Butt Judo. I highly recommend those. And then lastly, there's an instructional with me and Natasha on Jitsu on the Go called The Infinite Loop, which explores that relationship between the wedge bolo and leg locks and how anytime someone has one, you have the other. And it's a steal right now. I think it's on sale for like 10 bucks or something stupid cheap right now. Wow, I didn't see that. Where is that available? It's available on Jiu-Jitsu on the go. So if you go there and you click on, uh, I believe it's not, it doesn't say instructions, it's like programs or something, you'll find it as a standalone program or you can join Jiu-Jitsu on the go through Natasha and I. All the proceeds from the standalone program go directly to me and Natasha because the owner of the site has been really awesome in giving us this opportunity to uh, try and build more traffic to the site. So we get 100% of it. So you're just supporting us if you buy it. That's also why we can sell it for 10 or 20 bucks depending on the week. So there's that. And then uh, if you ever want to do a Zoom Zoom private or uh, bring me to your gym, just send me a message on Instagram. My Instagram is Charles Harriet, spelled H-A-R-R-I-O-T-T. And uh, you have your Linktree page. I saw that has everything on it as well. Well, everyone, thanks so much for watching again. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Give us the whole thumbs up, subscribe and everything. We really appreciate your time. Charles, man, it's been a tremendous honor. I enjoy this every time. It's always an absolute pleasure. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for watching. See you guys next time.